The last two weeks I focused first on God, an awesome God. Amen? And then last week on Jesus Christ. As the title of today's message indicates, last but certainly not least, I want to share this message dedicated to the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's so easy to place on the triune God our our human tendency to believe that if we prefer one part of the triune God over the other, there might be a little bit of jealousy going on in there. You know? If, If I prefer... Jesus over God, well, is God going to be, you know, jealous because I like Jesus better or, you know. But I'm not afraid. I think God can handle it. And I think Jesus could too. And I don't think they're going to be the least bit jealous of the fact that I want to say that my favorite part of the Holy Trinity is the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because He's with me all the time. These three weeks, whether or not you've realized it, we've been teaching about the Trinity. The three in one and the one in three. All the same and yet they're all different. And I say that my favorite is the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that is closest to me. He lives within me. It is the Holy Spirit that has been my guide throughout these years. As each year goes by, I've been able to trust Him more and more. I've been able to give Him more and more in my life. And I know there was a point in time, and we'll get into that word in a little bit, but there was a point in time when I gave myself fully to Him, but even though we give ourselves fully to Him, somehow we manage to hold these little pieces. And over the years, we we surrender. And God is patient. God is understanding. And He loves us. And He knows. And I can look back over my life and see the many times that I went my way. And had I listened to that precious Spirit of God, then I know that my life would have been different. And I know it would have been better. It was God's desire that we have the Holy Spirit When he created man in Genesis, read it with me. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. See, at that moment, it was the Spirit of God that was breathed into that form made out of the dust that made man, man. That made man holy. And not just holy, but it gave him life. Later in the message, I'll discuss the loss of that spirit. But know this. To be holy, you must have God's Holy Spirit. You can't be holy without it. Jesus made it clear to the apostles and ultimately to all who follow through his holy word that we must have that spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. 
Over my years, I've seen lives change through accepting that counselor, the Holy Spirit. Just this morning, I was talking in the Sunday school class about a man that I grew up with. He was older than I was in the church I grew up in. And while his life and the life of his wife and children were absolutely meticulously in line with the, the church's ideology of what a Christian should be, as a, a kid and then as a teenager, I could see there was something wrong. He was bitter, sour, mean, but he was a perfect Christian. He passed away this week. Well, the reason I'm telling you about him then is because some years later, I wasn't at the church at the time, I was told he gave his heart to the Lord. And you know how they knew he gave his heart to the Lord? You know how they knew that it, some, somewhere along the line he had to give his heart to the Lord? It's because back then, while he professed to be a Christian... He was only going through the actions. Yeah, I don't believe you can be bitter and angry and sour and, and mean and have the presence of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. And the reason we know that he gave his heart to the Lord, he said he changed. The people who knew him said he changed. He became a new creature. And I could see even in pictures before and after there was a different countenance on his face. You could actually see it in the pictures. That is the Holy Spirit. I've seen both a gradual change over the years and I've also seen instantaneous change. I can remember in 1969 I was all of what? 15, no, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, whatever, 15, our church had a revival, and about five hippies came into our church, I mean real legitimate hippies, sandals on their feet, oh poor Laura's not here, I can make fun of her. <laughs> They had jeans with holes in the knees. They had long hair and beards. I was too afraid to get close enough to see if they stank. They went up to the altar. They had the audacity to kneel down before God like that. I think they should have gone home and got cleaned up and put on a suit and tie before they came before God. Nah. Do you know what? They got saved. They accepted the Holy Spirit in their life. The next day they came back. You know what? They still had jeans on, but they were clean, pressed. They had it. They they they, they looked different. I don't remember all the details, but a lot of the stuff that were hanging around their neck was gone. There was a different look on their face. And four out of five of them went on to God's Bible College. One of them was a senior at God's Bible College the year I was a freshman there. And he was going on to do graduate work. There was a change in their life. 
I've seen it in my life, and I've seen it in many of you here within this congregation over time. Amen? Jesus made it clear to the apostles when he said, read it with me, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. See, at this point, he's promising something. The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, will teach you. His presence in our life, it, it teaches us and it guides us. And if His presence is in your life, there is going to be a transformation and there is going to be a change. And there's going to be an instantaneous change and then there's going to be that gradual learning and, and progression. Some of you may hear the word sanctification at times in conversation. Teaching and preaching and not, maybe not fully understanding what it is. And that's understandable. But to put it simply, sanctification, or to be sanctified, is to be God's completely. And in that moment in your life, when you've not only accepted God's gift of salvation, but you've also accepted God's plan for your life, that point becomes a point of being sanctified, to being set aside for him. It's also been called the full surrender or slaying of the old man or the old woman or dying to self. But whatever you call it, when it happens in your spiritual life, your priorities change. Your goals in life may be turned right upside down. Your priorities move away from yourself and they start focusing on others. And while it's focused on others, it is centered on Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen? Let me tell you, it is a wonderful life. It is a magnificent obsession. It is. There is no better way to live life than to be in the center of God's will and have Him at the center of your will. It was important to God that we have the filling of His Spirit. There's an often missed scripture. You read right through it and you don't really relate to it. In John 20, it says, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I mean, that part right there is, can you imagine it? You're deathly afraid. You're locked together into this room. And the one that, that died, and you know he rose again, but now you're going to be persecuted. You know you are, and they're going to come after you. And all of a sudden, in your midst, is the very God, Jesus Christ. He's standing right there. What a wonderful, wonderful gift to these people men and after he said peace be with you he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were sure they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord and again Jesus said peace be with you 
As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Wow! He breathed on them and received the Holy Spirit. Just like when God created mankind. Even before Pentecost, this is what's often missed. We, we think the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. He did. But to these disciples, they received the Holy Spirit in that moment right from the breath of Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus knew what they were going to be facing and he knew that they would need every bit of strength to carry them through those trying days. And between his resurrection and his ascension, it was, in, it was essential that they hold together. And one thing that I have found to be so very true in my life, when God calls you to do something, he enables you to fulfill that calling, whatever it is. He breathes into you. If, if you want to say an extra amount of this Holy Spirit, you're, you're like that, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm able to do this. Praise God. Not by my power, but by His power. Amen? Adam Clark put it this way. He breathed on them, intimating by this that they were to be made new men in order to be properly qualified for the work to which he had called them. For in this breathing he evidently alluded to the first creation of man when God breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul, the breath or the spirit of God, the Rosh Elohim, brought into them being the grand principle and the cause of his spiritual and divine life. So we must have the Spirit of God and this gift of God is free, it's real, and it is with us, but it's also something that must be cared for. What we do within our life after the gift of God, his Holy Spirit determines our relationship with God. And by that, we can live a life that grieves the Holy Spirit away. This is something that's so not emphasized enough in the church. Don't give your heart to the Lord. Hallelujah, you're saved. And then nothing. Read with me what David said in Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Boy, if there was ever a biblical character that could have been or should have been cast away, it was King David. Some of the things he did were just outright despicable. 
But David loved God. And David knew that God loved him. And I can just see David after he sinned. I can see him sitting alone somewhere, just thinking about what he had done, sitting there knowing that he had grieved the very Spirit of God, and, and he loved God. And he had to have felt that separation. And he was asking himself the question, can I... Can I even ask God to forgive me one more time? So many times I've had to go to Him. Is He going to forgive me one more time? Do I even dare go ask Him? What David probably didn't know was it was that very spirit of regret and shame that was setting his soul up for forgiveness. You get it? That's what God seeks in people. We've lost that in our nation. There is no shame for doing wrong anymore. It, matter of fact, it becomes a badge now. There's not one person in this room, no matter how good you've lived your life, that there's not something that you've done that you should be ashamed of. And to go before God with, yeah, I know I did that, but yeah, yeah it was nothing. But the beginning is to recognize and be sorry. That is the beginning. And what a beautiful example of God's redemption through His Holy Spirit. Adam Clark is so succinct in his exegesis of the 11th verse of our text today. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Adam Clark says... But while there is any godly sorrow, any feeling of regret for having sinned against God, any desire to seek mercy, then the case is not hopeless. For these things prove that the light of the Spirit is not withdrawn. It's not hopeless. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is something that we have to recognize. God has emotions. He feels pain. He grieves. He sheds tears over His creation. A song that I love, though it's not totally theologically correct, but I've always loved it because it makes me think. They tell me Jesus died for my transgressions and that he paid that price a long, long time ago when he gave his life for me on a hill called Calvary. But there's something else I really want to know. Does he still feel the nails? Every time I fail? Does he hear the crowd cry crucify again? Am I causing him pain? Oh, I know I've got to change. I just can't bear the thought of hurting him. Right. 
You know you're getting closer to God when you can't bear the thought that the actions of your life might hurt God, disappoint God. The second verse says, It seems that I'm so good at breaking promises, and I treat His precious grace so carelessly. But each time He forgives, what if He relives? the agony he felt on the tree. And it makes me just want to not hurt him. To live my life that brings joy to him rather than pain. That's having him at the center of our life. When you love someone, your life is dedicated to being everything that you can to bring joy and avoid pain. We don't have a true idea of what love is in our culture anymore. We don't understand it. I won't even go into all the social ramifications of this, oh, I'm in love. One simple verse of Scripture keeps resounding in my mind, has since I was a teenager. It's one of those Scriptures that becomes your moral compass. And it's very, very simple. As John quoted in the words of Christ earlier in John 14, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. King James is where I learned, If you love me, obey my commandments. Simple. It goes on to say, If you... If you love me and you obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Wow. If you love me, you're going to obey what I command. But you know what? If you truly love me, not only will you obey what I command, I'm going to give you the ability to obey what I command. The world... The spirit of truth, he says. The counselor who will be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. And I say they don't want to see him. They don't want to know him. Because seeing him and knowing him will mean we have to change our life. He says, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart, right? I live, he lives. And you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. So for those out there who, who proclaim I am a Christian... Oh, I love the Lord with all my heart. 
and they're living lives that you know that it just doesn't seem to line up with the love of Christ, they need to understand 21st verse of 14, chapter of John. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love him and show myself to him through the presence of my Holy Spirit. We must have the Holy Spirit. And we can grieve that Holy Spirit out of our lives. But what a wonderful third point of today's lesson. We don't have to grieve the Holy Spirit. Or to put it another way, we do not have to sin. We don't have to. It's an excuse. Oh, well, you know, everybody does it. It's just part of being man. Not according to my God. Not according to His Word. And how, I tell you what, I struggled with that concept all my life. How do I live life without sinning? I still remember answering the question in my freshman year of college when it said, define sin. Textbook answer. A willful violation of a known law of God. Sounds good. And it's true as far as it goes. Hamartia is the Greek word for sin used throughout the New Testament. I've mentioned it before in, in different times, but it bears repeating. It literally means missing the mark. Now, if you stop right there, it sounds impossible to live life free from sin. And that's where I struggled for so many years. Because as, as a teenager and as a young man, I tried to live my life for God. And I knew I failed. I'd talk back to so I'd be talked nasty to someone or I would have even thoughts, impure thoughts or wrong thoughts towards someone else. These are all sin. And I can't can't be with God in sin. And so I was constantly beating myself. I should have just taken one of those cat of nine tails and just walked around beating myself because there's no way I could seem to hit Mark. I could not be the person I thought God wanted me to be. But it's, this is where we've got to understand what it says. No matter how hard we try, somehow, somewhere, and in some way, whether it's in our mind, or it comes out of our mouths, or even if it's a look, or an attitude, we miss the mark. This is where rightly dividing the word comes in because hamartia means more than just missing the mark. It refers to someone who misses the mark because they're not even aiming at it. They're not even trying to hit the mark. So when is missing the mark sin for someone who really loves God in trying, it's when they say they love God and yet they're not even trying to live for Him. The 
the target's over there and they're not doing this they're doing oh I love God I can't seem to hit the mark though they're not even trying David's sitting there after killing Bathsheba's husband Uriah stealing his wife after getting her pregnant and after losing this newborn child he had two choices when I first wrote the sentence, I, I wrote, he had two choices, turn to God or turn away from God. And I had to know. His two choices were to turn to God or do nothing. Because at that point, he'd already turned away from God. He had already majorly missed the mark. He wasn't even trying to hit it until God used the prophet Nathan to call him back. And at that point, David could have rebelled. He could have stayed right where he was. He could have said, I am king, and if I want a person, I can take that person. If I want a person dead, I have the right to, to say for that person to be dead. And he did, as king. But it wasn't right in God's law. And he knew that. But instead... This is why God says in his word that David was a man after his own heart. Instead, he became humble. He repented. And it's at this point that David writes some of his psalms. Imagine the great man of the land, the most powerful ruler, bowing before God and saying those words, Create in me a pure heart, O oh God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy. Because right now, I don't have it. And grant me a willing spirit, more or less... Enable me to do what you called me to do. I'm so weak. And Lord, if you do this, I'll take my failures. I'll admit to them. And I'll teach transgressors about your ways. And sinners will be turned back to you because I can use the example of my poor, failed life and your grace and how it's changed me to enable them to recognize I haven't even done that much. It's done that for me. I've never killed anybody. Oh, but I thought about it. <laughs> we'll stop there. So know this. You do not have to sin. It's not mandatory. Romans 6. <clears throat> Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master's why? Because you're not under the law, you're under grace. 
This is what testifies to your relationship with God the Father, Jesus Christ the Redeemer, and our Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Your life will show it. Your actions will show it. Your attitudes will show it. And I praise God for the last part of my life verse. You all, I've told you before, I'll say it again. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be found blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 24, And the one who calls you, the one who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. We don't even have to do it. We just have to let Him do it through us. That applies to holy living. All we have to do is let God have free reign in our life. That's all. Just let God have free reign. If we do it, if we do that, He will do it. Now, I used up last week's ten minutes, I know. So we're just about even right now. Here's the application. John writes to us in 1 John 2, 1. My dear children, I love that, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense or in the King James. We have an advocate with the Father. Amen? Jesus Christ, the righteous one, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He wanted to make sure that that we knew here in 2012 that he wasn't just talking about those apostles and the ones who lived when Jesus lived. But to this very day, he is the atonement for our sins. And for the sins of the whole world. And we know that we have come to know him. Oh, wait a minute. We know that we have come to know Him if, if we obey His commands. I sometimes think that God has a bit of a lawyer's mind because there's always some little codicil. This is how you'll know. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. We know that we have come to know Him. We know that we have Christ in us if we are obeying His commands. Is there anything as beautiful as grace? Is there any feeling better than when you have hurt someone and you say with true heartfelt regret, I'm so sorry. And the one you harm says to you, I forgive you. What a release. And what a joy. What a moment of absolute gratitude to be forgiven. Too many of us grew up with personalities that were unforgiving and critical, some just outright mean. God forgive them for what they implanted within our hearts because without the grace of God, we become unforgiving and bitter and mean. And as I said last week, do not place on God the negative human attributes that we see or that we have. 
That's not God. God is kind. God is loving. By all abounding measures, He is fair. Talk about fair and balanced. The judgment seat of God is the most fair and balanced place you can stand because He knows us and He knows He's going to give us every opportunity and every leeway. He gave it to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And all we have to do is to listen to that still, small voice. The still, small voice of God's indwelling Holy Spirit. Wow. My comforter, my friend, he's with me. Every day. I know he's with me because there's times I've, I've done, said something or done something and right away inside I, I, I hear him. Actually, I think I feel him gripping my heart and saying, whoa, back up here, buddy. Father, I pray that we would recognize the evidence of your Spirit is the life that we live and the example that we give. May we all find the peace and the joy that comes from that relationship. If there's anybody here this morning that you don't know that you have that kind of relationship with God and, and you desire it. You know, you don't, you don't have to be an uh, outright backslidden, in-the-world person. You could have been a lover of the Lord and just never really given yourself over to Him. This altar is here for that kind of person. These front seats. You may come pray and ask God bring that about in you he is kind he is loving he is fair and he wants to be all consuming in our lives give us a few moments of silence and you can listen to that spirit within yourself